Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello and salutations to anyone listening to this on the Temple Beth Am podcast, whenever and wherever you are. Uh, we are all on Zoom today. Uh, chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, verse 8. We read the verse last week. Anyone who was at my Shabbat afternoon class, uh, we did a long, wonderful discursus on this verse by a uh, 19th and early 20th century Italian sage, um, Rabbi Umberto Casuto. Um, and I kind of did that in advance of our looking at Rashi's take on this verse this week. Um, Tova, I hope you're feeling better. You feeling okay? Good. Okay. Uh, yes. Yes, I'm better now. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Um, uh, because Kosuto uh, took a more kind of historical, uh, encyclopedic um, approach to deciphering this verse, and Rashi is going to um, uh, mostly go into language and Old French, but a version of Old French that modern scholars don't really understand, as you'll see. Um, usually when we look at Rashi's turn to Old French, there is some way of iodine tracing what the word meant then to a modern French cognate, and it's much harder in these cases. So it, it may have been Rashi was confused about the Hebrew word, or it may have been, conf- maybe that, lang- you know, languages, it's actually amazing that we still can trace a connection uh, in French words over a thousand years. Okay, let me read the verse again to get us going, um, and then um, we'll see what Rashi says. Vayomer Adonai al-Mosheb God said to Moses and to Aaron, so we we focused on that uh, last week, that he's speaking to both of them. Speaking all in the plural. Take, and the, and the verb take is in the plural, so that you too take for yourselves or take yourselves. The fill of your, of your this, right? The fill of, of two palms of, of stuff. Okay, so the image, if we stop the verse right there, is that there are going to be four heaping palmfuls of whatever, because each of them have two. Piach kibshan, the soot of the kiln. Uzurako Moshe, this is God still speaking, this is not Moshe doing it, but God's still speaking. And Moses will throw, right? If you if you take apart the uh, word zirako, it's, it's v'zarak oto. Right, um, but the vit turns into an u because the shva under the zayin, so it's uzrako, and Moshe will throw it where hashamayma towards the heavens leene pharaoh, which could mean several different things. It could mean um, in the presence of Pharaoh. Someone suggested last week maybe it means into the eyes of Pharaoh, in which case because it literally means the eyes. Uh, in which case, are we, is Moshe throwing it in two directions? you know, up and forward, um, but something like in the presence of Pharaoh, okay? Um, when we read the verse last week, we spoke a little bit about what the word piach might mean. Rashi will go into it deeper, but it's probably from the root nafach, and the nun of the root disappears in some forms. So nafach means to blow, and piach, therefore, is something which can be blown, and soot is easily blown. In fact, it's the remnant of something which has been burned, which can be blown by wind. Okay, that's kind of where we were. Um, anyone want to say anything on the verse itself before we look at Rashi's take on it? Okay. Uh, uh, Larry, Herman, do you want to read the Rashi, which is mostly going to be 
well, read the Rashi, but we're then gonna I'm gonna pull up some um, pages from Safaria on Rashi's use of French. Go ahead. I'm not in a position to read. Sorry. Ah, no problem. Uh, uh, Tova, do you want to read? Not good on Rashi. Try somebody else. <laughs> okay. Uh, God, I got one more and I strike out. Um, uh, Sue, do you want to read? Unmute, Sue. I know. I'm sorry. I'm not like I haven't been used to lately and I'm like looking for my unmute button. Melo Hafnechem. Hafnechem. Yeah, good luck pronouncing this. <laughs> yeah, good so, luck pronouncing this. Thank you. Yelonesh Beloes. It's it's okay. whatever that means. Right. So Belaaz means in Old French, mm-hmm. Beloazi in the foreign language. Usually the Yud, the Yud, Shin, when Rashi transliterates Old French into Hebrew, we have to kind of guess at how he's doing so. Because we, even if we know the way old, like the, the roots of Old French, how it was pronounced, right? You ever see these videos of people trying to pre, uh, predict, not predict, it's the wrong word, to reconstruct how Shakespeare sounded in Shakespeare in English. And there's, an, there's some amazing videos where they have, they have painstakingly gone through lines and based on what they consider to have been rhyming puns that we miss because in our pronunciation of English, they don't rhyme. They've been able to try to figure out, ah, these words rhymed back then. And they're, I mean, we don't know for sure, but there are these reconstructions of what of what Shakespeare's English sounded like, right? Even if we understand the word, what they sounded like. So go back 400 years earlier to imagine what, what Rashi's French sounded like is very, and therefore how he would transliterate into Hebrew is very different than um, understanding the meaning, which parentheses and parentheses makes the um, the um, consistency of Hebrew that much more amazing because there's no guesswork in Hebrew pronunciation, right? I mean, in modern Jew, Jew speak, there have been Yiddishizations and things like that. And and we know that like the, the soft gimel might have pronounced a little bit differently, uh, but but the word Shabbat, was oh you know two thousand years ago was Shabbat it may, have, it may have been Shabbat Shabbat but we can we can guess how it was pronounced right so the Yud Shin ending in Irashi it may have been the French E I S like or E I or you know E A or something like that so Ulvine who knows look what um, Otsar Loaze Rashi says He's, oh so this is. Again, um, a wonderful single-volume text that has been safariaized that goes through every, literally every situation in Rashi's commentary on the Torah and the Talmud, using um, uh, using um, you know linguistics and etymological sources to try to figure out what he said. There's also, by the way, I think we discussed this in on the Talmud, not on Rashi's commentary. I don't think on the Torah, there's a work called the Targum, which translates Rashi's Old French into Yiddish. And then you have to go from the Yiddish to the English. But look what it says on Yiddish. He So this guy is retransliterating it into English as Jelone, Yelones, right? Um, and um, Glunim, I don't know what the Hebrew word Glunim means, but then he puts in parentheses, midot hayovesh, dry weight, right? A, you know, like, so there's a different, different words for dry weight and liquid weight or, or, or dry measurement, measurements of dry stuff. Um, 
This is all about the handfuls? This is all about trying to figure out what the hell Rashi meant when he translated the word chofnechem into, um, into Old French. Uh, I will tell you before we read this, I don't understand every word of this because this is now very technical, grammatical, um, Hebrew grammatical um, discursus on, on what Rashi is saying. Bain Hamon Girsaot, amongst the many versions of Rashi, Boltot Haotiot Hamechuvanot Lefinua Hanal. Certain letters kind of stand out that that um, point us towards this Pinuach. A Pinuach is a deciphering. Um, o Lemila Krova, or to a word that is similar to it. Kugon Yelonesh, Glonesh, uh, and maybe Glonesh. In French, is related to glunim, which is the Hebrew word that he's putting up there. Um, and he even says in that bracket in the second line, kamo hashem ha'ivri, like the Hebrew word. Shone legamrehu hanusach poye sheba'arba kitayad. Very interesting. In four manuscripts of Rashi, there's an entirely different word that than the one we have. We have a word that looks like yelonesh or something. And there are four manuscripts of Rashi where the word he uses for the old French for Chofnechem is poye or some or however you would you would pronounce Pevab Yud Yud Lamed. Kafihanira, it seems, Ratsu Likarev et Halaaz Legizron Poing. It seems that he wanted to bring that French close to this Root, this idea of poing, which means a growth. What's a growth? A fist. A fistful, right? But the word, any word similar to poye, eno yidua. No one knows it. It's possible, that he was just kind of wrong. He made a mistake as he was trying to associate this with one major word. It's really interesting. Um, um, we always assume that Rashi knows what he's talking about, even if we find some of his answers to be fanciful or hard to take in. But this 20th century scholar is saying, we don't really know what Rashi was doing by pointing us to this word, Yelonesh, and there are certain manuscripts that disagree with it entirely. Okay? So that's on, um, and, and we know what it is. We, you know, it's a fistful, but what Rashi was doing, the French were not sure. I saw Barry's hand, but he walked away, Rick, and then uh, Barry. Hi. So I wanted to share. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. I, I wanted to share what Silverman had. Okay. The red Please. Silverman. Um, first of all, up above, right when they're translating, he has old friends. Juan Chez. I'll spell it for you. J-O-I-N-C-H-E-I-Z. Juan so I don't, I don't see. Yeah. Well, Shea would be E-R on the end or E-T. I, yeah. I, I don't know if you pronounce the Z or not. I'm not I'm not that great at French at all. But um, there's a Z there. So I was going to, I didn't see it in this uh, safari here. So I thought maybe we could look that up. And then there's another one I wanted to tell you. Um, so should I do that now or you want to do that first? Or I don't know. No, it's up keep to going. you. Keep going. Okay, so that's up above, and then it goes English double handfuls. Okay, so but he has join. I'm thinking it's join, right? But 
Chaise is a is a chair, S C H A I S E, but that's a totally different word. So this is C H E I Z. Anyway, so then the footnote it, it says according to Berliner, I'm not sure who he was. This word has not yet been explained as an old French term for dust or soot in parentheses. And then he goes Heidenheim, whoever Heidenheim was, suggested the emendation. With a pay on the front of it. So pay vav <clears throat> lamed vav yud samech, which they they go i.e. for example, pulvis, <clears throat> p-u-l-v-i-s, and then comma dust. You're, uh, you're 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 and you're actually now reading the comment on the next one, not this one. So oh, I'm sorry. So, so, so well, you're, the... you're you're reading yeah, the comment on Piach. We're on the comment on Chofnei. Oh, hold that one. Okay, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll get to we'll get we'll get to the Piach in a second because there are two in this one comment of Rashi. Oh, there are two right. times where he brings in Old French. Okay, uh, okay. But the pay being dropped, I thought would help here, but I guess it doesn't. So no, he's talking about uh, what, pay being dropped in the old French of the next site, the next word, not this. Yeah. Word. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Barry. So the yeah the jo- I'll look up join chaise. I'll Google it. Yeah, I, I I don't know enough about French to have say anything about that. I don't see Rosemary today, so she can't help us. Uh, Barry. Okay. Uh, so you uh, went back to the questions. Any have any comment? And I was too slow in finding my hand, but uh, here I am going back to the question. And uh, in the phrase here, we have hafnechem, um, uh, 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 handfuls, plural, but we have uzrako, uh, uh, singular. So, uh, what's the what's the plural of handfuls becoming a a singular to throw? And I I. I I don't want to blow last Shabbat, but uh, that's the essence of what you were discussing. Right. right. So, uh, Kasuto gives his answer to that question. The Uzerako means, and Moshe will throw it. So the handfuls have turned into a single amount of substance, right? The first half of the verse is each of you take handfuls and then something like, and Moshe will throw all of it, right? That's how it becomes singularized. It becomes a single collection of the soot. Um, okay, so that's what Rashi says on Chofnechem, uh, and now let's keep going. He's going to, uh, back to you, Sue. What does he say on Piach HaKibshan? Well, I will say, I will go on, except I want to know if Chofnechem appears anywhere else in the Torah, or is this one of these? Yeah, we have it in the sacrifices, that oftentimes that the Kohen is asked to take Melochofnav, a fill of his hand. We have that in the Torah reading for um, Yom Kippur. The, ah. the, the uh, ritual Yom Kippur, there were handfuls of incense, usually with, with respect to the Ketoret. Ah, okay. All right, we're going on. Piach, uh, piach Kipshan, uh, we're focusing on that, the soot of the furnace. Davar anafach mina gechalim amumim nisrafim bekipshan. Okay, put a period there. So davar hanipach. How would um, this? Remember, I told you that that piach might probably comes from the root napach with a nun. So in this form, the nun is back. Devar hanipach, that which is like uh, like anafach, like the thing that blows. 
Right. A thing that is blown or literally because in the knee file, a thing that is blown, something that but, is blown. And but then it from, also, I mean, Leitna Peach is like this. Does that have any association? No? Uh, Don't we, to, to flip over, isn't that? Isn't that Lehit Hapeach, like Hafuch? I think there's a nun in there sometimes. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I don't know. I don't Maybe. know. Um, so that which is blown mean so keep on mean hagchalim ha'amumim hanisrafim bakivshan from what from those dead uh, coal charcoal coals that were uh, burnt in the furnace. Good, and that word amumim interested me, so I want to share with you because I did, I was not aware of that before. I want to share what what Jastro says about amumim. Um, so amam, bottom right. Um, hmm. Hold on, where is it? I think Lahit Napeach might be uh, here. Oh. Middle left, Amam. Uh, to be pressed and to be dim. And it's kind of a Jastro jackpot because the example that Jastro gives for this root is Gechalim Sha'amamu. Not from our exact source, but from a Tosefta Shabbat, coals which have begun to die down. Oh, uh, uh, it's not a it's not a root that I know from other uh, other places, but to to die down, right? So if you if you um, push that into Rashi's sentence, right? These are so so piach is the thing which is blown from the coals which have died down after having been burnt in the kiln, right? We knew that Rashi just breaking down for us, yeah. No, no longer glowing. Yeah. They're, Initially, they're they're glowing, and the, after they've blown and landed where they're landed, they no longer glow. Yeah. Um, okay, and now Rashi brings us to another French word. Yes. Although, lehitna peach means to swell, like if I have a swollen finger, ah. That's right. Um, yeah, I don't... I, um, Right, nafeach means to be because it's also like the word for bellows, right? It's it's the thing that you blow into, so it's so it swells. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's see what what Otsar Loaze Rashi has to say about that. Okay. Uh, so he turns it into an English transliteration, Hebrew olve. Uh, and he says the Hebrew is gechalim, right? Coals. And look what he um, says on this. This is entry 3081. Shnei haloazim achronim. These last two instances of Old French. Ein lahem mashmoyot. They have, there's no clear testimony or single understanding of their meaning. It's really interesting. He just, no one really knows what Rashi's talking about here. Ach shnehem mofi'im makom but two, both of them appear at this spot, the Glusar Shel Paris, one of the famous Paris manuscripts of Rashi. Sheyatsala, or um, that that um, that you know was was published, uh, you know, in the in the following situation. So this is basically the author of Otsar Loaze Rashi saying Rashi has tried to solve a puzzle by giving us these two French words. It doesn't really help that much. We're not exactly sure what it means. Um, okay, Joanna. I see your hand. It's interesting that the shorosh can mean to swell up also because there's this imagery here of like 
the act itself communicating to Paro, like what's going to happen to you. Paro, your ego is all swollen and puffed up now, but look what's going to happen. We're throwing it up and then you're going to land and, you know, those embers are going to burn out and you're going to be nothing. Oh, it's interesting you say it that way. I thought you were going in a different direction, which is that the impact of this plague is that your flesh is going to be swollen and blown up because that's where the boils are. So there's like there could be could be that in triplicate. And I hadn't thought about that before. That the that the root right we we talked um on Shabbat afternoon about how there could be a, a, like a perfect plot match between the source of this um plague being the soot from the kiln in which the Israelites did their hardest labor in creating the bricks for the for the for the building works. And now where it could be that the word piach, right, comes from the root, which means to blow up and to blow out, which is what's going to happen to them on their skin, which I hadn't thought about it either. So great. I like the pigtails, by the way. It's a good look. <laughs> um, great. And then even though Rashi's corner kind of already said this, read the last line of Rashi, uh, Sue. Piach and piach? Yeah. Okay, piach. Lashon <clears throat> afacha. Uh, it's it's it comes from afacha piach comes from afacha something that flies around right mm-hmm. that the that the the wind can make it fly around yeah essentially right to to to, to make it blow and to make and to make it and to make it fly. So he kind of already said that when he says above Devar Hanipach, but I think if you really want to read it super technically, and the, the first part of Rashi says Devar Hani, it's a sentence. Devar Hanipach min hagachalim awamim, the thing which flies out from the uh, the simmering coals, and then at the last line he says, and this this is from what Hebrew root piach from the root hafacha. Good. I see Rick and I see Larry. Oh hi. <clears throat> so I just wanted to. I, I have two things. <clears throat> One. Le'ene faro. Whenever I say, whenever I see le'ene something, uh, it reminds me of the Israelites who thought that they were grasshoppers. We we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. So, mm. um, what what the images or what's happening may not be true or not, because um, um, we weren't grasshoppers. So it's it's performing all these things in front of Pharaoh. Um, it, it it may not be like it is, but anyway. I, I discovered, uh, so that wasn't much, but I I, uh, I found something yesterday that had to relate to Pharaoh letting us go and worship. It was in, uh, it was on the news or it was on Yahoo yesterday. Could I just share it for 30 seconds? Sure, go ahead. Okay, thank you. So uh, this was on Yahoo yesterday. So apparently they discovered um, some ancient uh, writings from Constantine, the emperor, who was, uh, at first he was uh, persecuting the Christians, and then he he changed. And what the letter said was that he was allowing the people of the town to go celebrate their religious festival in another town, as long as they built a temple to what Constantine considered his divine ancestors. So, uh, and that's what they're digging up, is this uh, temple that these pagans built to the uh, um, uh, uh, divine ancestors, uh, the Christians did, so uh, he would let the Christians go to some festivals. So um, 
it, it, it just reminded me of Pharaoh saying, okay, you can go worship your God, whatever, as long as you worship me too. Hmm. Um, so it, it's a, it's a common theme that a dictator will want you to keep worshiping him no matter what else you're doing. So I wanted to throw that in. Um, Thanks, but it Chris. just happened yesterday. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. Listen, the, the entire world and the news cycle is revolving around where we are in our Rashi class. And I just appreciate that about reality. <laughs> Larry, your turn. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> so I'm sorry if I'm a little incoherent. I'm, I was late getting back from shul and I got some things going on here. But in any case, I'm I'm looking at the altar. <clears throat> comment on, on the translation is not, I don't think, particularly interesting. But the commentary is um, the beginning of the second half of the 10 plagues is marked by a switch from the set formula for launching the plague with an outstretched staff. I think we talked about that last time. Mm-hmm. And we also talked about it a little bit on Shabbat afternoon. Go ahead. I apologize for not making it. Um, and Mark switched from the set formula. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. This scooping up a suit and cast, soot and casting it skyward intensifies the ominousness omin, of the moment and has the look of an act of sympathetic magic. The black dust from the kiln turns into broadcast contamination. A plague clearly paired with the preceding plague of livestock pestilence, but affecting man as well as beast. So first, my comment is, this is kind of like the beginning of epidemiology, that they knew that there may be airborne contamination. Hmm, interesting. That's a reach. That's a reach. Hmm. But it strikes me that that's what was going on. Hmm. And they thought that this was being contaminated through the, this was the contamination was taking place through the air. But why do you think, why is it that <clears throat> Alter says it's paired with livestock pestilence? Because I don't remember there being any sort of what he calls broadcast contamination with the um, the previous plague. Does he mean that the previous plague also hit the animals? Ah, affecting that. Ma- yeah, maybe that could be. Okay, that could be. It had nothing to do with the with the with the um, airborne contamination, but rather that affected the animals. I think so because because th- because that's obviously what Dever did. It was specifically focused on animals, and it's the first. I think it's the first of the plagues where it's specifically mentioning that the animals were plagued. Where you can imagine the horses. I don't think they had horses, but I'm sure the livestock weren't enjoying all of the frogs. But I don't think that the livestock are mentioned as specific um, targets of the plague before the fifth one. Uh, the horses. They had horses for the chariots to chase the Israelites. That's true. Um, okay. Uh, th- uh, that's it for but now uh, Rashi has a third comment so we'll bring back Sue um, to, say, to finish uh, what Rashi has to say about uh, this one uh, we don't hear you okay <clears throat> good yeah Uzrako <clears throat> Moshe and he threw it Moshe threw it Okay, what does that mean? Okay, it, it, everything that um, was thrown with force um, isn't... Wait, but it's, it's thrown with one hand. Right, remember that... The construction ain dot 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 and Ella 
is best translated in English as only, right? Anything that is thrown with fourth force is only thrown with one hand, right? Just think about that. Even though it's somewhat counterintuitive, using two hands bring, gives you more muscle, it is very hard to throw something. You could throw a baseball with one hand much farther than you could throw a soccer ball with two hands, right? Because you don't have as much of the of the torque of the um you know of the of the leverage right so what rashi is saying is here from the fact that it used the word zoraic and there are super commentaries in rashi that said as opposed to lahashli which means just to like cast which is the other verb that's been used here but basically we're being told he really threw it he became like sandy koufax he he was a shot putter he really threw this okay because it's one hand go ahead Okay, I, I do have a question of how you take a double handful of ash and then all of a sudden throw it with only one hand, but we'll go back to that. Ah, you're, we, about, you're, you're about, Rashi knows that that was your question and he's about to answer it. <laughs> okay. nisim arbe echad she Okay, so do that part. Um, okay, because, you know, behold, there were so many miracles in there. Does he mean miracles in the sand? That's so no, many. Meaning this verse represents many miracles. The first thing that is miraculous about this, he says, if you look closely and realize that the word zarak means to throw, which means he did it with one hand, is that? Oh, and that one handful of Mos- of Moshe's contained as much as two handfuls. Correct, right. <laughs> it's that, a miracle. <laughs> yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> he was able to grab with, with one comets, one handful, that the and our own too. Yeah. So four times as much, right? They were double, two double handfuls. And apparently, and he knows this because of the word Zarak, he was able to take all of that in his giant hand, in his right uh, Donald Trumpian hand, and pick it up and throw all of that. Uh, all of it out. So that's miracle number one that he developed very l- large hands in this moment. Go ahead. And another, did I read more in Hebrew? No. no? The, oh, the echad. al kol eretz mitzrayim, and one, and and one miracle. And, an, and, and another, another one. They're saying another one miracle is as as that this stuff flew all over the whole entire country of Egypt. Good. So read the first phrase of verse nine. In the Torah? In the Torah. First phrase. And the uh, the dust spread all over the Eretz Mitzrayim. Right. So <laughs> sometimes you just got to give Rashi a big hug. Like, it's so sweet. He just, he, he just, he's always looking for anything that will allow him, um, and of, and almost always will have allowed the Midrashists from a thousand years before him to just expand the scope of, of of the grandeur of our heroes um, and the grandeur of God. And he pulls this from the word Zarak. Sometimes Zarak just means Zarak. He says, no, this was a throw. It was a throw, which means that his hand miraculously grew, so he was able to throw so much. And he, he really was, you know, one of the great um, hurlers of all time, and he threw it throughout all of Egypt, right? Pulling that out of that one word. 
Um, and he, and again, like always, almost always, he's not pulling this out of nowhere. This midrash, a version of this midrash, appears in the Tanhuma and other places. To Rachel's question, I don't know, but if you can find such a picture, I would love to see it. Um, and it's unclear if, even though I'm kind of being playful with it, if Rashi's image of the miracle is a large hand, which he doesn't say explicitly, or just I don't know, a compressing of the four handfuls of the dust into something that he could hold with his normal size hand. That It sort of matters, doesn't doesn't matter, but I, I'm not sure Rashi is actually imagining, you know, an expanded hand, but just a miraculousness, like 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 one cruise of oil lasting eight days, right? You don't, in that, in that miracle, you don't have to think, well, did the oil like compress, you know, was one eighth of it used each day? It lasted eight days. That's what we need to know. Um, okay, uh, Rick and Barry. A question. Um, so we went past Kumso in the uh, Rashi, right? In the English, it go- Silverman again, it says one that Moses' closed fingers, and then in parentheses, they just have kamats, kuf mem final sadi. So I wanted to ask you, is that related to the vowel kamats? No. Is there any a, a comets is a measurement of, of dry flat dry We see that also in uh, a lot in, in the book of Ayikra. Um it's also Kmitsa is this finger, fourth finger. In Hebrew, every finger has a different name. Agudal thumb, uh etzba, the pointer. Yeah, um, I don't want to do it, but the middle one, Ama. Um Kmitsa, the fourth finger, and Zeret. And so I think the connection between, I'm not sure why the middle, the fourth one is kmitza, but somehow, I don't know, if you, I guess if you're taking a handful, is your fourth finger the one like guiding you? I don't know. But the word for a handful and the and the root for the fourth finger are related to one another. Yeah. Um, Sue, did you want to respond to that on kmitza komets? And then we'll go to Barry or something else. Um, something something else that... Um, that um... I don't know how to put my hand down. Oh, there it is. Um, something else, you know, I was thinking back when we said at the very beginning of this whole sentence that it was, you know, you threw it up or threw it out. It looks like up. He, he threw it into Pharaoh's eyes, which sounds like his eyes to me, like in a Pharaoh's in a Pharaoh. And, right. and, you know, this whole thing that, oh, and then he had to, he, he threw it all, you know, in one hand and all over Egypt, but really, Lene Pharaoh accomplishes all of it. And I'm just, I'm just thinking that he, he, he basically blinded Pharaoh huh. with this, with this, um, Piaf. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and that is all of Egypt. Pharaoh mm-hmm. is all of Egypt. Interesting. And so like that, and as far as Pharaoh knew, this was all over Egypt. This was everyone. Because he was now blinded by this stuff. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for both of those points, Sue. Um, It's actually fascinating to me that even though colloquially a nefaro means in the presence of, that Rashi does not pick up on just the pregnant possibility of a midrashic understanding of it, of Moshe throwing it into his eyes. Because Rashi knows both things, right? So so Rashi didn't, but Sue Chesroni did, and all is well in the world. Uh, Barry, and then Tova, and then Larry. Uh, well, Rabbi Liquid, I'm going to ask you for some miracle. Uh, you're on your foot. Uh, how does the Sandy Colfax one-handed pitch uh, become a box that 
can be thrown with a Sandy Koufax pitch. Oh, from lat from Shabbat afternoon, you mean? Yeah. yeah. What what is he throwing? Yeah. I'm going to wait for that. What Barry's referencing is that one of the things that Casuto said in his long comment on this verse is that, you know, you reader are wondering how it went from um, both of them taking two handfuls and Moshe throwing it. Casuto answers it differently than Rashi does. He says, basically, the instruction is both of you go in there. The double handfuls is rep- is representing an amount. Go take that amount, put it in a container, and then take that container to Pharaoh. Pharaoh wasn't in the kiln. Pharaoh doesn't hang out where the peons hang out. Carry that to the to Pharaoh. And in Pharaoh's presence, Moses, you know, maybe even one handful at a time. Kosuto doesn't didn't need miracle here. One full handful of time, take it out and throw it up in the air in Pharaoh's presence. Oh, multiple pitches. Multiple pitches, yes. Uh Tova and then Larry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, just a, a question of clarif- for clarification on Uz- Uzrako, uh, uh-huh. because my uh, um, text has it translated as sprinkle, which seems completely different from what we're talking about. So I just wanted to ask, does it explicitly mean throw, or can it also mean something like toss, yeah. which is different and you can do with two hands? Yeah, it's a good question, particularly because where the word zarak appears mostly in Torah Hebrew is our rituals inside the temple, which really is sprinkling, like the sprinkling of the blood of the blood is either Zarak or Lehazot, right? So it's not Sandy Koufax, it's not an Olympic shot putter, it's a it's a toss sprinkle. So the fact that Rashi, who certainly knows that, is using this as a way of proving, not just suggesting, proving that this was a throw that could only be done by one hand is a little bit of selectic, selective, etym- uh, you know, uh, etymology work for him. Yeah. And in the book of Vayikra, when we get there, haha, you'll, you'll see Zarak <laughs> a lot and, you know, pay attention to it in the next few months when we get there in the Torah reading. And it's all happening inside the Kodesh Kodeshim or inside the temple. This, these were not long distance. Throws. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for that, Tova. Larry? So I guess I'm fixated on the um, on the epidemiology, and it never occurred to me before, and I'm sure someone's commented on it that the that the plagues are divided into different categories, and these are the only two. The previous one and this are the only two that are actually diseases, right? Everything else is either natural phenomenon or having something to do with um, infestation of various of various animals. And right. The question is: Are the inf- is is the problem of the infestation like the, the, the that they will devour everything, or that they might cause diseases? But there's not there's not a direct reference to illness, um, other than these two. Correct. One for the right. other one, and and these five and six. Going back to something that Barry said last week, there are a lot of ways of dividing these. Like Casuto sees these as sets of three. <laughs> Plus the tenth, right? That the that you can f- see a cycle of that, but you can also see five and six as the fulcrum of the ten, right? Because if you have an even number, both the two middle ones are the fulcrum, and it's five and six, Dever and Shechin, that are the ones that represent represent, uh, represent disease. And the the only reason I'm commenting on that is because it is rather miraculous in an unfortunate way that disease can spread so quickly. Hmm. Because it's so it's airborne and it doesn't take very long, and I'm thinking of this right now because my granddaughter came down with 
a terrible um, stomach virus, which then she got it from her school and spread and then spread to her parents. And now see, apparently it's also spread to Diane. And it just, it just, these sorts of diseases can, can move very quickly. So not so surprising that it's spread all over uh, Egypt so rapidly being a disease. And if you will, I just have one more question because as you know, I take attendance and I don't know who iPhone 323-937-7010 is. Larry, that that's Baruch Kaplan. Baruch Kaplan. Thank you, Baruch. You're welcome, Larry. Good to see you, Bill. Um, great. Um, oh yeah, we, we didn't, we, we closed 2023 without Larry giving out attendance awards and, uh, who had, who had, who had made the most number of classes and giving out Jolly Rancher candies for those who had the highest, uh, highest percentage of attendance. Um, okay. Uh, looking at Rachel's comment, are there commentaries on the nature of the sud? Maybe that is as important as how the sud is thrown. Yeah, the, the, I mean, uh, when the question is, are there commentaries on, the answer is almost always yes. Um, and Shabbat afternoon, we focused basically on that, on Kasuto drawing out the relationship between the 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 substance through which this plague is created and the origin of that substance. The origin of that substance is this is the sweat of the brows of the Israelite slaves whose hardest and hottest work were in that kiln. And what 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 is the remnant of hard work in the kiln, Kasuda says. He says, you know, the thing which is burned up and blows into the air dissipates and the bricks leave the factory. But um, on the sides of the walls of that kiln, you can see the proof of the torturous work that was done underneath it. Um, okay, good. That was verse uh, eight. Let's go to verse uh, nine. Uh, Carol, do you want to read verse nine? Sure. Um, okay, let's see. V'haya le'avak al kol eretz mitzrayim v'haya al ha'adam ve'al ha'behemah the Shechin Poreach Abba Ababuot Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim. Good. And before you start translating, we are mid quotation marks. God is still speaking about what's going to happen. So that's the tense of Vihaya is, and it will be because it's a Vavhaipu. So God is still predicting okay. nothing's actually happened yet. Okay. It will, it will become a, a dust on. Um, all of the land of Egypt, and it will be on the the people, on on man and on beast, uh, as shechin. Uh, shechin, <laughs> that's boils or whatever we call it. Uh, poreach, uh, isn't that like blossom, like Hashkedia parachat? Exactly, and that's very a very timely reference, Carol, considering what tomorrow is, right? Um, Right, a, a parach is a flower, right? So some kind of a flowering, blooming shechin. Um, uh, uh, blooming into uh, Abba, uh, Abba Bu'ot's blisters right. on, on all of the, the land of Egypt, throughout, yeah. throughout the land of Egypt. I wonder if Abba Bu'ot is the, is the, is the, Inspiration for Abani Bio Boy Bev, because that's what I think about every time I see Avabuot. I think about that um, 
um, Euro, Eurovision song. Was that Israel's Eurovision Eurovision song in the late seventies? Abani biobo ebev. Maybe it's just me. Um, you might know the modern Hebrew. What's a buah in modern Hebrew? Bet vav ayin hey. Sue. Sue. I can see you want to say it. It's a bubble. It's a bubble, right? So a bu'ah is a bubble, like just blowing bubbles. It's clearly to avabu'o. It's something which bubbles up, right, on the skin. That's what a blister is. It's a bubble on the skin, okay? Um, good, right? So God is, again, still in the predictive mode. Once you throw, once Moses, you throw the piach into the heavens in Pharaoh's presence, um, it will become... Um, uh, like the dust will will be all over the land of Egypt. It's going to go on people. It's going to go on animals. And what will it be? A flowering, bubbling boil on all the land of Egypt. Okay, um, lovely, very descriptive. Uh, questions, comments before we look at the Rashi on um, anything on the verse itself, the language, plot line. Going once. Okay, uh, Rashi. On Lishin Porech Avabuot. And the, the, the micro syntax of that three word phrase, I think, is the following that Shin is the noun, Poreach is describing what the thing is doing, and Avabuot is the object. So it's going to become a boil which flowers bubbles. Right, uh, it's a shchin which is poreach. What is it poreaching? It's poreaching avabuot. Right, so um, it's possible to do that in different ways, but I think that's the the simplest way of understanding it. It's it's a, a sore which continues to flower and produce avabuot bubbles. Okay, go ahead. Um, the other thing I was going to comment is that they do say eretz kol eretz misraim twice, which is a little bit repetitive, but. I guess it, it makes it flow better. Um, okay, lish, lishchin porech ababuot, katargumo, like, uh, Unklu says, uh, lishichana sage ababuin. And in that three word Aramaic phrase of Unklus, what's the only word that is sort of different, a different root than the Hebrew? Sage. Sage, right? So shichana in Aramaic is clearly shechin in Hebrew. Avabuin is clearly avabuot, but sage. Anyone know what the Aramaic word sage means? Samech gimel yud? I can just tell you, or it's more fun to look at the jastro so you can see it in the original. Um, one second. So I thought I pulled this one up before, but it's not here. So must the so closed by accident. Okay, I'm going to share the screen. Okay, sagi. Uh, to swell, to rise, to grow, to spread, to increase, and to thrive. Uh, sagi also means, as an adjective, enough. And it can also mean lots of, it's a lot, it's, it means a lot of things. But here, the verb sagi means to swell, rise, and grow, right? So that's a perfectly good um, trans, uh, rendering of poreach, something which is growing, sprouting. And I think what Rashi is saying is you don't have to think of flower here. I think Rashi knows that we might think of poreach as 
as vegetation. And he says, look what Uncleus did. He translated it into a more generic word that is not about plants. It's just about growing bigger, thriving and, and swelling. And therefore, it's almost a rush saying the Aramaic is, is, is either better than the Hebrew or Uncleus understood that that poreach can also mean just a general growing, okay? So a growing, a, a shechin which grows a babuot, okay? And keep reading, she'ayado. She'ayado, tzom chin bahen buot, that, um, that, that on it or through it, um, I do not know what tzom chin is. What is tzemach, a tzomeach? Also uh, from, you have that in the first chapter of Breshit, it's similar to poreah, to grow. Atsema, atlitzmoach means to grow and to sprout. Okay? Um, and the, the buot, I'm assuming, is kind of like the, is the blisters. Right. The word for the blisters. Correct. So the thing through which blisters grow. Right. What's the bahen? In, in, in it or through it? Through them. I think it's literally in them and the them meaning the shin on the bodies. It's if it's saying like it's going to land on you and by means of them on the people are going to grow these bubbles that they're going to be. And it's going to be like a, um, I don't know, like an active culture, right? Like you think, you know, you, when you're, if you're creating a, a starter dough, right? Like it's, it's actually living and growing in that little dish you have it in that whatever's going to be on the Egyptians, it's going to be a thing which has its own animation and is growing bubbles on your body. How horrific. Okay. We sort of understood that from Shekhin Poreach but I think he's just kind of breaking it down to describe exactly how he imagines it was actually going to happen. And again, it's still in the going to happen stage of the verse not happened yet. It's going to be the next verse, which we may or may not get to today where it actually takes place. Uh, Barry. Again, you, you, you would ask questions and a little bit slow. So I'm going back. Um, the, 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 the sweat of the Israelites in the kilns, uh, being a ceramist, and I'd mentioned this before, uh, normally you think of a kiln as an oven that you put things into and fire and you close the door and then you bring them out again. Uh, in Egypt, we're talking about bricks that were very large. Uh, this, uh, building the pyramids, these were extremely large and heavy items. So the size of these kilns were actually the size of a factory that the Israelites are inside of and working and lifting and moving these huge, heavy objects. So that there's a lot, a lot of soot and a lot of sweat inside these. Yeah, thank you, Barry. And it, listen, it also might be Another, someone mentioned the Shabbat Midah, connected Midah, measure for measure, not just that the that the soot is taken from the place where the Israelites um, did their hardest work, but, you know, if you really want to nail it down, what kind of injury is someone, what might someone get from working, uh, you know, too close to the fire of a kiln, you know, kind of a, uh, a burn that is likely to blister up and create, you know, these pockets of, of pus on your body, right? So what the Egyptians are going to experience in plague six is is probably very connected to what the Torah imagines the Israelites experience as a result of their labor in the very place from which that um, plague began. Uh, Tova? Sorry. Uh, just to clarify, Egyptian mud bricks, though they were sometimes fired in kilns, were also at just as commonly sun-dried, and they weren't that big. They were you know, like this size. 
Uh, so the, it's not the same image as the giant granite blocks of the pyramid being moved, which were done by a very different process and by big teams. Uh, so it would have been probably freestanding kilns, not a great big kiln room that you were taking massive blocks into. <laughs> okay. But another another comment back to it was that uh, uh, non-fired clay, greenware, mm-hmm. in one season of rain will disappear. But kiln-fired bricks will last over many seasons, many centuries. Right. No, I realize that. But if you look at a lot of the ruins in the Delta that were you know, storehouses and things that were built of bricks, they, in fact, did basically disappear yeah. fairly quickly. But but in any case, the kilns wouldn't have been big kiln rooms. They would have been smaller standing kilns. So, this, Tilba, this is precisely the reason um, why I thought you would have uh, thrilled at the Shabbat afternoon class, because you're right on target, because Casuto goes there. I, I talked about the class that Casuto was in the in the rare-ish overlap of um, late late 19th century, early 20th century, very from commentators in the Torah who were intellectuals and academics. Um, and as Stevie pointed out the class, and that happened more commonly in Italy than in other parts of, certainly more in Eastern, Eastern Europe. And so he says something very similar. Let me see if I can get it down. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll just read it in English because it's quicker. Um, uh, why they need to take handfuls of soot is not stated, and at first glance the thing seems odd, but it is worth paying some attention to it, for the kiln is a type of factory within which workers do their work with fire, and among other things they burn the bricks with fire. Indeed, although the Egyptians before the Roman period mostly used bricks that were dried by the heat of the sun, burning the bricks in the kiln was also customary among them, and specifically in buildings from the era of the 19th dynasty with which Ramses II was associated, who was the very pharaoh that enslaved Israel, and from the area of the 20th dynasty, there have been found several instances of bricks burned by fire. Now, I do not know enough about that to know whether or not he's correct. Um, as, you know, There was no carbon dating yet, as Stevie pointed out, but I have to believe that he was pretty sure he was correct, because he, again, he was an academic in addition to being a Torah scholar, and he seems to believe that in addition to the more common way of creating bricks, as you mentioned, Toba, there apparently was some archaeological proof that there were also kiln-burned bricks from that um, dynasty in Egypt. Um, so that's what Kasuto said. So thanks for that, Toba. Um, great. Um, yes, so do I, Sue. Uh, we all love uh, uh, when Toba's expertise comes out in this class. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, okay. I think that's the end of that comment on Rashi. Rashi is now going to say something on the word Shekhin itself. Anything else before I uh, call back on uh, Carol to speak? Okay. So now on the word Shekhin itself, and we'll probably end with this. Um, Shekhin, Lashon Hamimut, the language of heat. Right. So now that Rashi has told you what he thinks the plague was like, He's kind of going backwards a bit. Like, you know, if, if I were Rashi, I would start with what the word means and then tell you how to understand the verse. He's now saying, yeah, we all know what Shekhin means, but why does it mean what it means? He thinks that the etymology of the of the root, that Shin Chet Nun, has to do with heat, okay, which makes double sense. It makes sense in terms of the origin of this plague, and it makes sense to, you know, 
you have a blister on your body, it, it is hot to the touch. We know it's hot to the touch because, you know, our blood cells are going towards it to, you know, to fight an infection. But it is heat. And then he gives us um, some Mishnaic examples, or one at least, the Harbe. Harbe, yesh, belishon, Mishnah. Uh, many examples are in the language of the Mishnah. Shana, Shechuna, which I guess is a hot year. Right. Uh, in Masechet Yoma, uh, page 53, there's a reference to Shabbat Shechuna. If it was Echaf, Shin Chafnun, that means to dwell, like Shechina. Shin Chetnun, I do not know a modern Hebrew equivalent, so if you know, let me know. But in it's clear in context in the Talmud that a Shabbat Shechuna is a hot year. So what's Shechina... You, what's a neighborhood? Shechuna is... Chaf. Chaf. That's, that's Shin Chafnun. I don't know. I mean, I don't know every modern Hebrew word, but I don't, I'm not aware of a modern Hebrew word of shin chet nun, meaning heat, but maybe, maybe there is. I don't know. Uh, to, uh, where, where is Vered when we need her? Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's shin, a, a, a hot plague that plagues the animals and the adults that stems from the hottest place where the Israelites worked to create um, the buildings for the Egyptians. Um, good. Uh, that brings us to the end of verse 9, and it brings us exactly to 1230. Uh, 1230, 930. My, my 1230, you're 930. Uh, Larry, you were going to say something. You are you're, you had a funny emoji up there. That was because I missed the, the raised hand, hand signal. Okay. I don't think it makes any sense, but Shechem, that chain, but that wouldn't be anything to do with hot. Like like grace? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, it would be a fun game to play, like a Notre Kun, right? Like um like the Notre Kun <clears throat> the play that why why is one of God's names Shaddai? It's Shaddai, the one who is enough, the Almighty. They they know that's what the word means, but they're just kind of playing with that. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, do a little bit of research on modern Hebrew if I find a word that I had forgotten. But uh, at first glance, I, I don't I don't know of it. And I, I'm normally I don't have my um, my um, uh, book that's in my lockers, you know, for for when we have live class. So I'm using Silverstein, Silver Silverman, for the first time, um, which is awkward for me to use. But I noticed he had he, he translates in the first Rashi, he translates it um, boils into um, blames. I'd never seen that word. I'm surprised that nobody who uses Silverman didn't comment on it. And I just blames B L A I N S. You never had you never had chillblains? No, chillblains um, are your extremities. Um, Turning into like purplish um, ah. wounds from the cold, from expo- expo- chill blains from expo- exposure to the cold. Mm. Yeah. So in that case, what it would so it wouldn't be an irritation, wouldn't be an, um, like a boil or like an eruption, right? To be something else. Well, I think a, a, my understanding is that a blain is a more generic word for kind of a wound on your skin, and the question is, what's this? What's the source of the blain? Yeah, my. Uh, I looked it up and it says inflammatory swelling or sore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chill, chill, chill blains. Don't, uh, I've had them. They're awful. Avoid them if you can. <laughs> Robert, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. 
Thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Uh, be well. Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.